0: HVAC 360 is brought to you today by moms, who remind us not to let your babies grow up to be cowboys, but if they grow up to be engineers and contractors, that's just fine. Moms always know best. Thanks, mom. What's up? Welcome back to episode number 83. Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you go further and faster in the field of HVAC. In these podcasts, I share about stories, interview experts like today, and serve up the meat and potatoes to bulk up your HVAC knowledge. Now, if you're new here, uh, or if this leaves you wanting more information, just go to my website at HVAC360.com and subscribe to my list. And you'll get additional perspective uh, served up to you fresh on a weekly basis. So what's up for this week? Well, we're going to talk about what controllability is and how that affects building performance. To answer these questions and more, we jump to the other side of the pond to speak with Graham Smith, a SIPSI fellow and an expert on controllability. All right, first off, a little fair warning. Uh, I've had the gnomes here at HVAC360HQ working pretty hard to correct the audio on this episode, but it still sounds like I'm talking to Graham down a well. Uh, but there's not an annoying buzz in the background that came across when we were speaking across the pond. Uh, really, we'd love to bl- you know, blame uh, Skype for this one, but uh, I think it was just the, the types of system we re- were using. So, critical... Uh, This is really – try to get through it, I guess, because this topic is really becoming more and more relevant as systems become more complex. It really centers around central plants, and we're not talking like big industrial-sized central plants. Uh, It could be a couple of boilers. It could be a chiller. Uh, It really uh, is uh, critical to setting up your system. And really, if you really nerd out on this and get uh, a lot of education, uh, it could be a nice niche if uh, anybody wants to make a, a real business out of it. Um seems to suit Graham just fine. So please stick around after the interview, and I'll share my three top favorite takeaways from the conversation. So let's cut to the tape after this brief word from our sponsor. All right. Hey, we're uh, here with Graham Smith of Burling Consulting. How are you doing today, Graham? Fine,
1: right, thank you. Hey, Vic. Thank- yeah, the, the snow is gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, at least for one of us. So, um, hey, uh, just out of the gate, you know, I, I have this curiosity. I know that you're involved in energy efficiency with building performance, um, and I'm involved with commissioning. Uh, so w- can you explain a little bit about how commissioning uh, exists in the UK as part of the construction process? Right. Well,
1: one of the main problems is the end of the construction process and you, the time available gets squashed. Um, the, there tends to be commissioning specialists who do the system balancing flow measurement, uh, and then there are control specialists or manufacturers uh, who con- commission control systems, and uh, manufacturers or boilers, chillers, and so on who commission the appropriate bits of the kit. Uh, there are sympathy guides for management of commissioning Unfortunately, they very rarely get action correctly, so it tends to be a last-minute thing, and everyone sorts of tick boxes and gets the system handed over. Which is often it's not done as well as it should be done.
0: Okay, um, now I guess uh, how would you how would you describe Berlin Consulting? I mean, what what kind of work do you do? I kind of was, I was a little presumptuous, but how would you describe it?
1: Uh. uh Basically, a specialist consultant. I mainly work with other consultants, uh, assisting them to design systems so that they can be commissioned, so that they are controllable systems, and write the decent BMS specifications for them. Um, yeah, you know, I also get involved in doing mechanical design uh, and management systems. I, I originally started with a controls engineer. And ended up as a project manager for build, specialist buildings. Um, uh, so I was in charge of the overall design team, including architects and structural engineers and all of that. Um, since going back to working as a specialist, um, then primarily I get involved in control systems commissioning sorting out problems, you know, resolution of issues with the systems. I've just been involved in a one-megawatt biomass system that didn't work properly. It was stopping the handover of a £25 million project. <coughs> uh, there were some hydraulic issues which we've resolved, and we've now reset the control system up so that it works uh, in a sensible mode. Um, the, previous control system uh commissioned by the biomass specialists was not, uh, not very satisfactory to say the least
0: is is it a problem with the uh the knowledge of the integration between the systems or wh- i mean why why is the you know system set up by an expert not working properly i mean what what are the problems that happen there
1: Right, I think there's a a number of issues, and so um, controllability of systems is poorly understood, um, which relates to the size of the plant, often boilers, chillers, and so on are oversized, which can cause a number of issues, Uh, and turn down, is not adequately specified on those bits of kit at times. there's inadequate support um, you know, from specialist companies you know, where you get biomass boilers, uh, CHP systems. Uh, a lot of those companies don't provide adequate support to designers to give them the right information. Uh, I was involved in a CHP system a few years ago, and I happened to be on site when they're installing it. I was glancing through the installation and got, uh, manual, and on page 100, I found something that was critical to the design of the system. Yeah, it wouldn't accept return temperatures over 70 degrees C, um, and this had been sold on the basis of an LTHW system as the lead heat source, where it was 82 flow, 70 um, to return. Um, yeah. Uh, and therefore, the CHP would have never worked under those circumstances. Fortunately, we had a, a swinkle, we had a heat exchanger we could connect it to and get the right temperatures, and uh, we did a very rapid redesign and got the system working. It's worked very well ever since. But um, you know, information from manufacturers can be an issue. Hydraulic design is often a problem. People don't understand how to make systems controllable. Um, so it's often fairly simple once you understand the issues
0: I think that uh, a lot of people you know at least how you describe it and if I can kind of maybe simplify it to I think a lot of people understand uh it, system effect as it applies to a fan and i think when you're talking the hydraulics with the oversized plants um you're referring to how it operates through you know the different conditions that it's going to be exposed to and then the different um conditions that may not be what you've you know set up the design to do it's not a design day condition obviously they have to uh, operate throughout the year and what kind of conditions are going to be seen, what kind of flows, pressures, temperatures, and things like that. Is that, am I getting it right?
1: Absolutely. Um, With uh, a lot of mechanical designers will consider design conditions, middle of winter or middle of summer. Um, But 95% of the year you are not at design conditions, and the plant is operating at part load, and this part load performance is where you often get the problems. Uh, <clears throat> Sometimes, or in the past, these tend to have not, not been noticed as much, uh, but nowadays with bivalent systems, with biomass, CHP heat pumps, uh, people are looking at uh, utilisation of the uh, low carbon heat sources and finding that they're not uh, giving the performance they should. I looked at two biomass uh, systems on one site and the utilization was 13%. Yeah. Um, I, often, I've seen uh, quotations from this biomass manufacturer for another site. The the energy produced by the biomass system in his calculations for uh, payback was far more than the actual site used. Um, So uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there uh, and manufacturers, specialist suppliers aren't necessarily doing themselves a favour in... uh, um, the way that they present their information.
0: Now, when you when uh, obviously we've gotten biomass boilers, you're talking about, or is that is that? Am I getting that right? Biomass boilers that you're referring yes. to, or just biomass generators? Biomass,
1: biomass. boilers.
0: Okay, and then CHP—that's the uh, combined heat and power.
1: Uh, so gas-fired you know, combustion, you know, internal combustion engine, providing heat and um, uh, electricity. So. Right. Which they can work very well. Often the specialist supplier will try and supply something larger than is necessary and that's often where the problems start. Then hydraulics and then temperature limitations. I looked at uh, some the other day, CHP systems from one manufacturer who were looking at different sizes to try and optimise the size for a project. Um, and each different size of CHP system had uh, different temperature limitations. So you've got to consider that in the hydraulic design. You know, usually you can overcome the limitations provided you know what they are um, and how to tackle it. Um, which uh, often, you know, Sometimes you need heat exchangers uh, you know, as you know, buffer vessels, thermal stores. Um, Yeah, uh, there's a lot required to actually understand to make the system controllable.
0: Right. So, I mean, when you you have the system and it is, I mean, these are not standard systems. They're used for high-efficiency kind of uh, operations. Uh, I think that that at least most of the buildings don't have these type of systems. But you would think Uh, that...
1: They're becoming increasingly uh, an increasing requirement in the UK to uh, incorporate uh, these into uh, designs and then uh, there's a big push for uh, community heating, you know, heat networks which are providing heat from a central source. The idea there is that the central source is more efficient than you can include CHP or biomass or heat pumps which are a low carbon heat source. Unfortunately, the way a lot of the systems are designed and operated doesn't give you the advantages that they should provide. you know, especially where people try and do value engineering and cut out essential features or uh, re- reduce uh, you know, the, the um, design standards.
0: Do you th- do you think that the manufacturers intentionally upsell? You know, increase the size of equipment because they know that it may not be operating exactly how they have? You know exactly how the uh, engineer requires it so that they're not undersized, so that at least they're getting, you know, whatever output they need?
1: Well, yeah, that, that's uh, certainly one reason for doing it. Unfortunately, it then causes other problems. If you have a, uh, a, a heat network, which is a high differential temperature, so we're trying to create high differential temperatures, low flow rates on the secondary side. So it reduces pumping energy, and you've got a low temperature. So, you can, so the condensing boilers will work in condensing mode. Um, but if you have oversized plant on the primary side, then normally the, you know, the boiler will have a fixed flow rate. Uh, therefore if you have a low loss header then you've got recirculation on the primary side and immediately you've got higher temperatures coming back to the condensing boiler and it will never work in condensing mode um, i've been doing a lot of work with variable flow boilers recently uh, including thermal storage systems for peak loads on uh, university campuses and that sort of thing uh, you know there are ways of making it work, um, but you need to understand what's required and particularly what uh, boilers you need to make it work. Um, the same is true with CHP systems, uh, you know, with thermal storage. You know, you know, there's lots of ways of doing things. Um, there's an awful lot of ways of doing them that don't work properly. Um, you can. In some cases do a workaround and maybe, getting, you know, maybe get the control system to do things that uh, you know, may not be ideal to get the plant to work. But uh, it's much better to get it to work properly in the first place and for it to be a controllable system. Um, but uh, often people don't really understand much about controllability and just like ticking boxes to say they've got biomass or CHP or a heat pump, um, you, know, and, you know, there are limitations with that approach.
0: So the the controllability that you're talking about, I mean, obviously, uh, where would you? I mean, how would you teach that to younger engineers? Where where does that come into play?
1: Well, uh, there's there's a number of sort of basic things, you know, know, Q equals mc delta t, that's a common expression in in the States, Um, so, you know, you start with that. Um, If you ask most control engineers what that means, a lot of them wouldn't necessarily know. If you ask most mechanical engineers if that's got any relevance to the control of your systems, they probably also wouldn't know, Um, but, you know, know, you've got to get the temperatures uh, and hydraulics right Uh, as a starting point. Uh, You've got to understand the characteristics of the plant, how it works under all different load conditions, um, yeah. You know, so yeah, you know, it's, it's an understanding of hydraulics and an understanding of the plant operation, and then putting those together, and then getting an overall control strategy. And the system designer should write that control strategy. Most of the time, controls are inadequately specified, in my view. And just you know the yeah. You know, the biomass systems, often there's a sort of line that says the biomass boiler must be the lead heat source, but they don't tell you how it should be the lead heat source, how it's going to work, and how the subsequent plants should operate. Quite often, the systems are designed with temperature-based control strategies, and the individual plant has its own temperature-based control strategies, and the two interact. I use quite frequently heat mode based control strategies. So you're actually looking at the load on the system and then just enabling the boilers or the chillers um, to come on and off and control under their own control package control system. Then you've got a single point of responsibility for the chiller or the boiler to produce the temperature at the design flow rate. Uh, and work in a stable manner and all you're doing is enabling them and disabling them accordingly to load and in that way you can actually maximise the efficiency of the devices and so, <coughs> modern chillers and modern boilers are more efficient at low loads uh, so you, you know, if you can run it at lower load but in a stable manner then you're improving the efficiency but you've also got other factors to consider, recirculation around the primary loop, uh, that, that, that will affect the efficiency of the boiler, um, you know, so or a condensing boiler for instance. So there's, there's often a number of factors that you need to take into consideration. And uh, plant space can be an issue if we're doing heat load-based control, then we've got to have flow measurements measuring the flow rate and differential temperature Uh, often plant space is limited so space to put in a flow meter with 10 diameters upstream straight pipe and 10 downstream straight or five downstream straight pipe uh, may not be available so there are other options I did one the other day where we just use pump speed it's not ideal but it works and it works far far Better than the system that had originally been installed.
0: So now, I guess you have the advantage of having kind of a, a huge controls background, um, as opposed to a lot of the design engineers that that you know they've been designing systems. You know, yeah. So, and I guess just just so you know, people know. I mean, uh, controlling a system based on a set point—that's an easy thing. You slap a sensor on a pipe in a well, um, you know, and you get a temperature that you can control to. But when you're talking about actual, you know, controlling to heat flow, now you're actually adding the a differential temperature with a rate. Uh, of you know the, the the flow of the whatever medium yeah. these and flow of water
1: it's, it's it's nothing new in fact i believe it originated in the states um, back in the 1970s um you know but flow meters now are far more accurate and far cheaper than they used to be um you know we use there's a lot of heat meters now being used in the uk and europe um, so these are the ultrasonic ones. Um, they do need to be installed correctly. Um, I don't know whether you use heat interface units in the States. Um, they're quite often used here for you know, individual apartments um, you know, to measure the amount of heat going into the apartment and provide heating and hot water. Uh, they usually incorporate a, a heat meter, which to be an M.I.D. Uh, approved heat meter um, you know, for billing purposes, but very often when they're not installed you know, in straight after right angles in the pipework. They're never going to work properly like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've seen, I've seen them where, you know they seem, you know the yeah. You know, we've measured the heat in the boiler house. We've measured the heat in the you know, uh, the apartments, and there's a difference of about thirty percent. Uh, it, it makes a considerable difference how you install
0: the equipment. Yeah, and it, you know, and and in most in most cases, you know, if I'm looking at a set of drawings, where where you you know, it's it's diagrammatic in nature and it doesn't reflect the actual installation. So you're relying on the contractor to pick a good point. And typically, there is like you like you mentioned, there's no good point to put a flow meter in a lot of situations where you have a lot of. Bends in the pipe. Yeah, you, know, you don't get that, you know, straight run of you know twenty feet of, of, of pipe.
1: It's part of the design for controllability, and you know if you can't do that, um, then it may be that you need to take another strategy. As I said, you know, the other day we were trying to get some boilers to control on heat load. Uh, we managed to sort out the furnace boiler, but the. Gasified boilers. The control system was complete garbage. Um, so we've actually simplified it, uh, and we just you know, we enable the uh, primary boiler, the gas uh, gasified boiler, on temperature. Uh, if the biomass boiler is not topped up, the heat adequately on the return of the system, and the second boiler, we purely enable on pump speed. Uh, for the distribution system. Uh, you know, it's about 80%. It brings the boilers on and drops second, and drops off below 70%. It's, you know, it's not ideal, but uh, the what are heat meters in the uh, individual buildings, but uh, we can, well, uh, they can solve the communication problem to those. So it's always worth if you're relying upon. Uh, remote sensors, it's always worth having a backup, backup strategy, either in case of communication failure or if in this case we couldn't get it working during the time available to implement that um, at the time. But, uh, yeah, so there are often workarounds, but you, you know, it's better to you know, have it work, you know, have a principle that uh, should work most efficiently in the first place.
0: Absolutely. So I, I got to ask you, there was there's a story that uh, um, about your 15 minute solution. Um, <laughs> so there was a, it, it, tell, tell us a little bit about tell us about that story.
1: Yes, um, basically, uh, I won't say the name, but I was working for a large consultancy at the time. The local team who were located uh, 500 miles away from where I was. Um, had been working on a building for about 18 months and their decision, their their conclusion was it needed a new building management system. uh, This was probably about 15 years ago and the cost was £65,000 from what I remember, so about $100,000, something like that. Uh, I uh, was asked to go and have a look. I went to site started asking some questions and after about 15 minutes we reached the conclusion that the primary problem was the dead band between heating and cooling of had been set too close causing the system to uh, it was actually overlap between heating and cooling and which uh, was wasting about a quarter of their energy and um, so we reset it in one, out, one part of the building which took you know, probably another quarter of an hour and um, that seemed to work, and uh, yeah, so it didn't need a new building management system at all. All it needed was uh, setting up properly. Um, the there was also some sensors that had been poorly permission, what well, were poorly positioned because the um, partitions had been moved in some of the offices, which is a common issue. Um, so yeah, so you know, it took 15 minutes to uh, find the problem, um, <laughs> yeah, um, which saved them you know,
0: $100,000. Wow. Now, I mean, so that's, a, that's I guess that's a great example of finding things that are just, you know, not only did it save them, you know, money, but I'm sure it saved them energy, too.
1: Oh, yeah. They, they were wasting, their, their energy bill had gone up by 25%.
0: Now, what... Uh,
1: so Somebody had been fiddling with the settings, They're probably trying to control it closer. In fact, I had two uh, projects I was asked to look at last year. One was the production facility, a large um, aeronautical production facility, and there they had an um, oscillation between heating and cooling, and it was going all over the place. And basically, they'd set it up as a proportional control only on the uh, research units within the space. Um, so I set it up as a P plus I control loop, set it in, set set uh, 5 degrees proportional band, 5, five minutes or something uh, interaction time, and it just ran nice and stably. Um, I recommended 1.5 degrees dead band. They insisted on making that one degree to start with, but then changed it uh, later in the day to one and a half degrees because the units were interacting with each other. So there's about half a dozen units within the same space. So it's all tight control. And um, for so that one, we were very successful um, day on site. Um, uh, yeah, they, they, they paid out an awful lot for the commissioning of these. Uh, I put a bill in for... Uh, about five percent of what they paid for originally for the systems to be commissioned uh, uh, poorly. Uh, I'd solve the problem, put the bill in for five percent, and I said, "Oh, we didn't expect to bill that big." <laughs> so, um, uh, and then two weeks later, I was called into some other some other plant uh, on a laboratory which had exactly the same problems. Uh, unfortunately, the, the system we couldn't get working, The had on-off reheats um, and the reheats were inadequately sized for the humidification load because it uh, was a high proportion of fresh air um, and we actually had to uh, redesign the complete system uh, and I had to take out the complete installation and put in a new one. And, uh,
0: now is is that is that a case where you have um the design was you know here's the design day and it has to operate kind of in those kind of dead those intermediate zones
1: yeah basically you know there's there's a fairly small window you know if you look at the psychometric charts there's a, there's a small window of acceptable conditions that was a, a laboratory um And to achieve those, you've got to look at the amount of reheat you need and what controls necessary within that. So you have a, it all comes back to having a controllable system. The first example, the system was controllable but hadn't been set up right. The second example, uh, the system was not controllable. Um, We went through endless loops trying to uh, find replacement. research units that would go into the space uh, and in the end we, you know, we couldn't find any that you know would actually achieve the conditions that we wanted and had to put an air handling unit outside and uh, so yeah the contractor was partly driven down that route by the clients who wanted uh, who didn't want plant outside in the first place you know, you want know, more space being used up and that that can be an issue um, you know, where people you know, want to put things in a space that's too small that can have uh, you know, other, you know, other you know, it can create other
0: problems right so so what do you think i mean as far as controllability of systems how many systems what what percentage do you think have been set up correctly
1: Very few. (laughs) Very few of the ones I see. I I really hope that what I see is not representative because, uh, you know, I tend to get called into systems that are not working properly to put them right. Um, But, you know, there's an awful lot of documentation around about systems that don't work. Uh, There's a lot of papers and uh so published by people like Bill Bordas, I don't know if you've come across Bill, uh, and also the Neighbours programme in uh, Australia. Um, you, know, you know, but a lot of the time things can be improved considerably by just going back and doing basic uh, things. But, you know, also, you know, a lot of the, you know, what I've found is you know, quite a lot of the time yeah, you know, hydraulics need to be changed by a biomass system I've recently been working on where we made some changes to the system of hydraulics. Although the hydraulics as they were, weren't dissimilar to current, you know, to the SEBSI guidance. Um, but because of the uh, boiler sizes, it didn't, you know, it was too great an influence of gas-fired boilers. So, you know, again, it's a question of understanding all the influences upon the system uh, particularly at load conditions.
0: So, and, <clears throat> I'm, I'm assuming that there's probably a bunch of systems out there that are just um, energy inefficient, even though they kind of nobody realizes that, the, that there's a problem. You know, they're, they're, those aren't the systems that you're be, getting called about, but those are the systems that are out there. And I'm, I'm probably sure that there's a maybe a small minority of systems that may be working properly.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. So I think a lot of systems don't work as efficiently as they should. There are quite a few instances that have been reported of buildings using three times the energy that they should. Um, yeah, uh, I, I was, I was asked to, um, do a report on one, uh, sort of a year or so back. Uh, you know, very large, uh, I think it's a 90 million pound project. You know, so... 130, 140 million dollars. Could we do a thermal analysis of it, uh, do a report, and get everything done in the space of two weeks? Is it a physical impossibility, even if I'd had a team of 10 people to do it? (laughs) Uh, And I think that shows the client's understanding of what the issues are. Yeah, so you know, I suspect there are a, a, a number of reasons why that building doesn't perform. Um, I think some of the uh, some of the thermal modelling uh, may be a little bit optimistic on, on the way things perform. Um, certainly in older buildings, air leakage is a problem, um, inter- air infiltration. Um, I was responsible for a building um, well, or 12 years ago, it was on the top of a cliff top um, and wind speeds of over 100 miles an hour have been recorded uh, I think 136 was the, the maximum um, you know, We went to great lengths to make sure it was airtight and it worked and we, you know, we did everything that was necessary to make it controllable uh, a combination of 2 and 3 port valves with a variable flow system um, I went I was back on site uh, two or three years ago, and they're still happy with it. Uh, you know, you, you know, if you do it properly in the first place, you, you, it makes a considerable difference.
0: Now, do you think that the – I mean, is there, is there, as far as, like, uh, governmental mandates, <clears throat> excuse me, getting a grade for your building – uh, you know, the like energy, energy, and an energy grade. Um, is that is that something that's being done in the UK? Is that something that, that it may be kind of tipping owners off to saying, "Hey, you know what? My building, you know, is using a lot more energy than the building next door."
1: Yeah, there are public buildings have to have uh, certificates. Um, uh, commercial buildings, there are there are various schemes in place. Um, Some of them are more effective than others, Um, and again I think a fair bit of it is a little bit of tick box engineering to some extent. Uh, The building regulations have specific fan performance details, uh, have specific requirements on certain things. I have certain views on them. I, I think they could be significantly improved. <laughs> Again, I think, you know some of it, you know, it reflects a lack of understanding of what makes the buildings work.
0: Right. So we're 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 not there yet, I guess. No. No. So I guess what can what can be done? You know, is is the solution to educate the engineers, educate the the uh, controls contractors, educate the owners? Where where would the 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 best use of of education come about?
1: Well, I think it's a combination. I think you know, you know, I don't think there's one solution. I think the first step is to educate the systems designers. So. Yeah, with the GR40, I was involved, uh, primary author for that, um, for the Energy Efficiency Best Practice Programme 25 years ago. And with uh, SIBSI and BREXU at the time, we did a programme of lectures around the country to try and educate uh, systems designers and patrols engineers on how to make systems work. In an efficient manner, um, and I think that had an influence. You know, there's still people who use that guide to this day, um, uh, but it is out now well out of date. Um, so we need improved guidance. There's a, there's a lot of information out there. There's lots of guides on certain um, things on biomass guide. I was involved with the in SIBC, uh, we did put a fair bit in on controllability of systems and systems design, um, but there's very little in other guidance. So, you know, engineers need to have that information, need to have that guidance. There is no or very little documentation out there at the moment. You know, I've uh, I've started writing a book, but how far I get with it, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I may do it when I retire. But <laughs> might have better things to do. Um, if somebody can sponsor me in the meantime, I'll rise it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's a yeah that, that is desperately needed. Um, yeah, for, yeah, more information. I think it's, it's educational for systems designers to design a control system. Better education of the systems integrators, controls contractors to understand how to make things work. You know, I used to do training for some of the controls companies some years ago, and what I concentrated on was sort of telling them how to control the systems and what's the important factors rather than how to set up a PI loop. Um, I should know that, although some of them seem to have forgotten. Um, so and then the building user also needs education on what to do and what not to do. So how you know what to touch on his system, what to leave alone, and you know the number of times partitions get moved but sensors don't is uh, amazing. So they need to be educated. You know. If they make changes, then they need to consider the effect on systems. I've had uh, people in sports centres change meeting rooms to uh, gyms, which requires a higher fresh air rate, but uh, they they weren't aware of it. (laughs) Um, I've also had an office that uh, we designed for for six people to occupy, so fresh air for six people. Uh, I once counted 26 people in there, <laughs> so, you know, it's not just the building designers, you know, so, you know, the, you know, the architects you know, need to have a better understanding of spatial requirements for plants. You know, they don't, you know, even when I was managing the architects on projects, I had difficulty in getting them to allow enough space that we could put air handling units in. That sort of thing so um you know some sometimes the you know the the client pushes uh for you know maximum space utilization which is understandable because that affects his bottom line but he doesn't appreciate the implications of that
0: yeah i think that's i think that's extremely difficult for architects to to get a handle on because and I don't think that necessarily systems designers stand up for themselves uh, enough uh, because, you know, architects tend to have egos when you get to the, you know, the designer level, um, maybe not necessarily the, the details level, but the designer level, they they, they have an yeah. eco, they're the one, they want it to look a certain way, and they're going to try to squeeze out as little mechanical space as they possibly can.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have noticed that. <laughs> the ego's bit.
0: <laughs> so well fantastic. I mean it sounds it sounds great. I appreciate uh, any any last words that uh that you have uh that you wanna I th-
1: I think uh, you know it really it really needs an effort by everybody. You know, Uh I think you know, particularly control mobility is, is the biggest issue that I see that is not understood properly at the moment. Um, and there is little guidance out there um, so you know, to me that is the area that should really be developed in terms of providing guidance to uh, designers. Um, but at the moment um, you know, I'm, I find very few, few people understand what it is and its importance.
0: All right. Well, let's uh, let's learn more about uh, controllability, everybody. So do your part and, uh, you know, help Graham out with this, uh, this crusade of his. So. All right. Thanks for your time, Graham. I appreciate it. Okay. thank you very much. All right, we're back. Thanks again to Graham Smith with Burling Consulting for taking the time to chat with us. Check out the show notes for some of the things that Graham had mentioned during the interview, uh, especially since a lot of these SIPSI resources aren't that familiar uh, to most of us in the United States, uh, but they are still valuable resources, even though you probably have to convert from SI to English. So, All right. Uh, you can find those show notes back at HVAC360.com slash 83. Since this is episode number 83, I'm starting to do that nowadays. All right, as promised, here are my three highlights from this interview. First off, we have the plant sizing and the role of the manufacturers. That was kind of interesting to get his take on how manufacturers, how how you can get um, some variability on Uh, understanding and support from different manufacturers. Not everybody's the same. Uh, There's some good manufacturers out there and bad manufacturers out there. And even the good manufacturers, um, you know, don't necessarily always have all the support that you need uh, to fully understand your system. So make sure that you understand your system as an engineer and get that detailed properly. All right. Highlight number two is uh, designing in Controllability, And I really like how uh, Graham had flipped this back on the engineer saying, hey, you know what, if you're going to have a system, uh, it's more of than just throwing a bunch of control devices on a drawing and expect it to work or leaving it up to the controls contractor to really take over and, and make it an optimal solution. So I like that aspect. Number three, heat load for a strategy uh, for controlling the plant. Now, I need to learn more about this, and I think it's really easy as engineers to throw the word optimize around that um, and really get a, give it just lip service. And I think what we need to do is we need to really understand how systems operate, not just uh, functionally. I mean, they can, can, they can follow the control sequence, but Graham was getting down deeper in, in more than just following the control sequence. It was really optimizing, making sure that... Everything was uh, operating properly, and sometimes it would operate in ways that you wouldn't expect. And it's really hard because, just like system effect, it's hard for an engineer to look at a drawing and say, "Okay, I'm going to see there's going to be system effect here at these back to back elbows, and it's really going to really going to play a lot of havoc." But to understand a dynamic system like a uh, chilled water plant, biomass plant, heating water plant, Uh, to understand the whole system, this dynamic system, is really hard uh, because you're just piecing bits and pieces together and and really understanding. That's why I'm going to have to go back to the blackboard and really try to understand that one. As always, thanks so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Uh, Again, hey, if you know anybody who's in the building performance or controllability space, why don't you go ahead and share this with them. Not only is that going to be good for your friend, but it's also going to be good for you and building the connection that you two have so as I mentioned at the top of the show if you haven't subscribed to my list please do so it's at HVAC360.com I share weekly goodies there and if you want to do more because you haven't done enough already you can always consider leaving me a review on iTunes well that's it for this episode I'm Matt Nelson helping you go further faster in the field of HVAC and as always know what you build and share what you know Oh, um...